Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. and welcome back to Tripping Up, a comedy travel podcast. I'm your host, Nina Clapperton. For those who don't know, Tripping Up is a podcast all about celebrating travel, even the less glamorous side. Every other week, I chat with a guest about their funny travel stories. This week's guest is Dr. Emily Joy. Emily has a history of travel. She grew up in the Outer Hebrides, moved to Singapore, and then back to the UK, where her Air Force father crashed his plane into a water buffalo. I'm serious. That's a legitimate thing that happened in her life. With a start like that, you know your life is destined for some epic trip-ups. Emily went to medical school with grand plans to save lives, but while there, she was bitten by the travel bug. After working for two years in New Zealand, she became a GP in York. That's a normal doctor, like your family doctor for anyone who's not from the UK. But that travel bug was still itching. Perhaps two years in Sierra Leone with voluntary service overseas. Think Doctors Without Borders meets the Peace Corps would fulfill her goals. We'll find out a bit about that in this week's chat about Emily's work in Sierra Leone and some times when things went very comedically wrong. Unfortunately, Emily's plan to thrive in Sierra Leone was cut short by a lack of electricity, equipment, and the outbreak of a civil war. Those rebels really don't let you live your dreams. Without further ado, this is Emily Joy on Tripping Up. Now boarding. Hi, Emily. Welcome to Tripping Up Podcast. It's lovely to have you here. Hello, lovely to be here. We're very excited that you've been able to join us um, here. It's a lovely day in England, which I'm very jealous of. <laughs> well, Scotland, I'm afraid. We oh, just have to my correct bad. that. I'm yes. in the Highlands of Scotland. Yeah. Always good to correct. <laughs> um, from Canada, <laughs> we don't always know the difference. Too, surprisingly. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, so our guests may not know you yet, but I'm hoping they'll get to know you throughout the podcast and fall in love with your book as much as I am. Um, but to kind of give them a background, would you mind telling us a bit about how you travel and why you travel? Well, I suppose my travel's all been a bit work-related. I'm a, I'm a doctor, I'm a general practitioner uh, working in the Highlands just now, but I've managed to use my, my work to travel places. So I, as a student, I went to India for three months for my elective, and that was, that was fantastic. And... Um, I went to New Zealand for a year and a half, just after I finished my junior 
junior house jobs, um, internship, I, I guess, in, in, in North America. So I had a year and a half over there. Um, and then I suppose the biggest trip I did was when I went to um, Sierra Leone for two years with um, voluntary service overseas, which is um, a bit like Peace Corps for the Americans and I think QSO for the, for the Canadians. So I was two years in a mission hospital and traveling on the way there and, and back and around the country when I was there. And then, um, and then I had kids, so I was kind of grounded <laughs> for a while. Yeah. And then, um, so, uh, and of course, Sierra Leone, as anybody might know, got involved in an awful, awful, awful civil war. Uh, the hospital I worked with was, was burnt to the ground. Uh, I never thought I'd go back. But when I wrote my book, I said at the end, I promise I'd go back and I'll take my children. So um, it was about... 20 years later, I, I did go back and I took my children for six weeks. So we went back and they went to the local school. So uh, that was that was a fantastic experience. And I went back again um, a couple of years after that when the hospital that I was in, it had been burnt to the ground, being rebuilt and was operational again. Um, so I'd love to go back again. And now my youngest has gone off to university. And in fact, I was hoping to go again this year, but of course it's COVID. So yes, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately it's grounded everybody. <laughs> so yes, I'm not alone on that one. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's great that you managed to go back so many times though. I didn't realize that um, you'd been able to take the kids with you as well. I think that's a really cool experience. Well, yes. I mean, everyone thought I was a bit daft, um, including <laughs> my husband, but um, it was great. It was a great experience actually really really loved it and we were well looked after and um no it was a super experience i'm not sure they remember it particularly the <laughs> eldest one does a bit yeah but, um, yeah <laughs> i'm sure it's somewhere they in were, the what, six nine and ten okay so yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um our next question is have you picked up any weird travel souvenirs on your trips well not really, other than a very large grapefruit-sized lump on my thigh and a schistosomiasis when I came back the first time. At least I didn't get AIDS, and that was good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I got a couple of gifts. I guess my favorite gift was a patient came uh, on my doorstep with a very large sack. So he'd come in, and he was very, very anemic. So anemic, he'd gone into heart failure. And uh, so he brought me this gift, and he tipped the sack out, and it was just an enormous rat. Oh, God. <laughs> so, uh, finally, very good, very good. They're cutting grass, they're known as. So um, they said it was very good, very sweet. Uh, I wasn't terribly keen. Actually, I said he shouldn't have really given it to me. He should have given it to the hospital administrator, who was an Irishman called Nat, because um, he was the one who actually donated the blood. So mm -hmm. but, uh, that was very rude of me, refusing what was a lovely gift from his point of view. And I'm, if I remember correctly, in the book, you refer, he referred to it as beef, which I think must have really be, Well, everything's beef, yes. Uh, so okay. everything's beef. So anything that is walking is beef. So uh, you might be foul if you're a chicken. But, <laughs> oh, uh, it's beef if it's walking, because I've never seen a cow. He said, you want beef? And I said, well, um, well, I hadn't seen a cow, so I was quite interested to see what <laughs> beef was. But um, yes, the beef covers most things. Oh, goodness. I mean, that must be impossible if you try to go there and like I don't eat beef I eat other meat so I would just I mean I guess I'd be okay because I don't have beef but they have everything else 
Yeah, well, if you wanted, if you wanted something to eat, they would occasionally ki um, kill a pig. So what they would do, because obviously there's no refrigeration, they would go around to everybody in the village with a clipboard and ask you which bit of pig you wanted. And when they had enough orders for a pig, they would they would kill the pig and you would have the bit you wanted because then you'd obviously have to cook it and eat it fairly fairly straight away. I mean, it seems like a great method though for like ensuring well, I everything think so. used. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think so. And I had a, I had a chicken called Chicken Tika. Yes. And, um, <laughs> she had um, she had poppadons. She had six little poppadons, and <laughs> as they um, <laughs> as they grew up. No one was interested in stealing them, you see, when they were little, but as they grew up, and um, once the, the boy started to cock-a-doodle-doo, so they had to learn how to, how to, learn how to cock-a-doodle-doo. And um, as soon as they got the full, because they were cock a as soon as they learned how to fully cock-a-doodle-doo, they vanished. So oh, they were now no. big enough to be, to be pinched. So, um, anyway. <laughs> well, I mean, Quick I run down on the... Um, yeah. <laughs> Non-vegetarian options in, in Sierra <laughs> I love it, though. I mean, and it's good to know that, like, there are options, I guess, for... If so, I mean, I'm obviously never going to be qualified to be a doctor. It's too late in my life, and I get very squeamish. But good to know that there are options for other people. <laughs> well, uh, with VSO, and uh, the same with Peace Corps, there was a lovely group. So there were teachers, there were mechanics, there were um, tailors, a uh, lovely group of different people. So if anybody fancies, there are <laughs> a lot of options there. like to have some sort of skill, but it doesn't, yes. need, to be, doesn't need to be medicine. Uh -huh. That is really <laughs> good to know. Um, and now that we've talked about a bit about your travel and a bit about your uh, weird souvenir, which I think is a very unexpected souvenir. Um, I didn't bring it home with me, though. Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, I haven't it, got the bones in my rucksack. After two years, it would be a really, like, horrible thing to be keeping in the corner of your rucksack to go. <laughs> um, but I was going to say, you wouldn't mind um, sharing your tripping up travel story. So I have a lot of tripping up travel stories, but uh, <laughs> I'll just, I will say one. I'd been there, the main trip up when I was there is the rebels invaded and we ended up being, I ended up being the only doctor because all the other volunteers were pulled out. Um, and then it settled down a little bit. So I decided I would go home. I'd been there for 15 months. So I went home for a couple of weeks, um, which was a little bit shortened because, well, the pilot had malaria. So we were put off by two days before I could get the flight. And then I finally got, got home. And my dad was waiting for me with a hot chocolate and a, and a coat and <laughs> whipped me back. Just in time, I got just at the end of the watch night service at Christmas. So I got home in time. Anyway, that's not, not, that's not really the story. On the way back, I sat next to a young girl on the, well, younger than me, I was about 29 at the time. She was in her 20s and she was sort of thought of as being the new Jane Goodall. So she looked like Jane Goodall. So she was the blonde hair with all in thing. And she was studying chimpanzees up at the Otamba Kalimbi National Park. So I didn't even know they had chimpanzees. So I arranged with Felicity, I think she was called, to go and visit her. But I wasn't going to visit her until kind of a month. A month later, because now we had extra doctors, so just being the only doctor, there were three, so I had this big trip planned to go and visit Felicity, the new Jane Goodall, up at OKNP, as it was known, at the north of Sierra Leone. So the way, only way to get there, really, was on motorbike. Fortunately, my trip home, I'd gone on the motorcycle, of course. So now I was, well, I could get from A to B 
<laughs> on a road in Bristol, not necessarily on a road in Sierra Leone, which is yeah. quite a different <laughs> so, um, I, I was a bit late leaving, and I was supposed to go across this bridge. So there's a bridge across the river, and it's one of those bridges that only just goes across the river. And it had rained in the afternoon, so I got to the bridge, and the bridge was kind of a bit underwater, or the middle of it was. And I thought, well, it had been all right in the morning because I'd actually thought to check. So here I was on this motorbike, having done my three-day motorcycle training course in um, in Bristol, having borrowed a motorcycle off one of my, my colleagues at the hospital. And um, I got to the bridge, and I was trying to go across, and it started to go down a bit, and the water was coming up, and it was up to my knee, and it was up to my waist. And I was thinking, well, this is it, I'm going to die, which is a bit silly. I was thinking, dying at the hands of rebels, or maybe getting HIV, or malaria, or saving people heroically would be an okay <laughs> way to die. But just dying out of stupidity seemed a bit, a bit silly. And on the other side of the bridge was this lad. And he was standing there, and I thought, well, he's come to help me. So he stood there, and he watched me. And I pushed across this bridge. I got to the middle, and the water got higher over my thing. One time in my life, I'm glad I'm slightly on the heavy side, because I leaned into this. If I'd have been a seven-stone weakling, I'd have been down that river. But being a good, a good solid 16, <laughs> size 16, or well, whatever that is in America, size 16 woman, I leant into the motorbike, and I went. And, of course, I thought I'd better turn around, but I couldn't, because the water was coming, and I was on this bridge. So I leant into this motorbike, and finally I got past the deep bit, and I got to the other side, and this guy was standing there, and I said, oh, Dr. Gay, do you uh, give me a lift? <laughs> <laughs> not very impressed, not very impressed. And of course, my motorbike was not functioning by this point. I wanted to drive off in a strop. So I managed to push it the next mile and I got to the mining company uh, where I, I knew somebody who worked there and they put me up for the night and I arrived drenched from head to toe. The next day, I went up eight and a half hours to McBurka, which is right in north of Sierra Leone, because I had to get to this. Um, this, this nature park right at the very top and I was visiting a friend of a friend of ours another VSO taking a love letter as it happened from one of my colleagues one of my nurse colleagues so I was taking that <laughs> and I got all the way up to him and just as I got to his door I fell off the motorbike hence the grapefruit sized lump on the side here anyway that was fine he put me up for the night we had dinner and then I got back onto the motorbike and off I went for the other eight hours to finally get up to the Otango Columbia National Park and I arrived there and they told me that um, Felicity had malaria and I'd gone back to pretense. Oh, <laughs> I <was> no. there <laughs> having gone two hours. So I was stuck in a tent at the, for a night and I went to look, they have hippos. So I saw some hippos. I never got to see the chimpanzees because that was another two-day walk and you would need to know where to go, but I didn't. So I saw the hippos and I swam in the river. I fended off the monkeys trying to... It's very hard being on your own because you need to... If you're cooking your dinner, the monkeys came and pinched it. So if you had somebody else, <laughs> I'd them off, had my dinner. And um, yeah, and then I went home again. <laughs> <laughs> Two days yeah. back home. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like like a year's worth of adventure packed into those two days, though, realistically. <laughs> well, 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 it was a bit. And I was very lucky, though, because it was other VSOs in the country. So I had various points that I could stop off and meet 
a couple of people, so we would check in on each other because there was no mobile phones then and there was no internet. And um, uh, if you wanted to, if you wanted to um, contact anybody, you had to do it by radio through the Catholic Mission Network. So they would speak to each other at nine o'clock in the morning and at five o'clock at night. They would radio around. So if you had a message for anybody, a lot of the volunteers were in places where there was some Catholic mission, either a church or a school or a hospital, and you would leave them, you would leave them a message. Um, so that was the only way to get in contact. And then actually Felicity had contacted me, but she'd done it just after I'd left oh, yeah. and weren't able to get in touch with me to say that she wasn't 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 going to be there. And then of course when the rebels invaded, they worried that the rebels would kind of interfere with the, the messages going backwards and forwards. So because a lot of the Catholic mission run by the Irish, they um, they transmitted in Gaelic. So ah. that people understand. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's I definitely don't think anyone in Sierra Leone is gonna just happen to know Gaelic. So that's well, a very smart yes, way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, well I, I guess <laughs> the rebels. <laughs> I don't think the rebels did, no. Yeah, unless the Irish suddenly decided to join the rebels and then the whole system was going to be fraud. Well, they did. They did kidnap. Some people were kidnapped oh and held hostage. There a, lot of, a lot of things went quite badly wrong for a while. For a while. Um, uh, but anyway, that's, yeah. that's not a comedy travel story. <laughs> is it? No, it's probably yeah. not. <laughs> but I think it's really interesting, though, that, um, I mean, that you would go into a country and then all of this kind of stuff would happen in your peripheral and then immediately kind of take you into it. Because obviously when you mm -hmm. chose to go to Sierra Leone, you weren't choosing to be a part of, I mean, much less like the getting kind of reined in on a bridge and nearly floating away, but um, but dealing with rebels and dealing with, the hospital nearly, yeah, well, it was burned down, but initially. No, not at all. And in fact, I'm a bit of a wuss. I chose Sierra Leone because it seemed to be quite safe. It had never had a civil war. It never had an uprising. And actually, when I first went there, it was, you know, the 16 different tribes. Everybody got on really well. It was a very safe, safe place, actually. It felt very, very safe. Um, when the hospital was... Um, we had to evacuate the hospital because we were told through this radio network that I discussed, they phoned up to say we needed to evacuate the hospital. Um, and uh, so we basically just threw all the patients out. So what we didn't, we tried to give them medication that would do them for the next next uh, week or whatever. Um, but because of the big worry was that people would kind of loot the hospital. So we put all the all the equipment, all the surgical equipment, everything into one ward, um, and we into into the theatre and the surgical ward, which were kind of combined, and we welded it shut. Ah. Um, uh, anyway, so I then, when I didn't go home, I just went to this mining company to stay for a month until I knew if we could go back to the hospital because we didn't know if it was going to go on or not. And then when I was there, that was my next favourite story. Really, was when I was. Um, got a message in the morning to say that um, Lakeby, who was uh, one of our midwives, who had had four previous cesarean sections, and wasn't going to give them this baby normally, was in labour, and we would have to do a cesarean section on her. But of course, the theatre was welded shut. There was nobody in the hospital. It was completely evacuated. It was empty. There was only goats. So I had to go around the mining company at 7 o'clock in the morning, having been woken up with this sort of paper radio message, please come please bring 
welding equipment. So I had to go and ask the mining company if they had welding equipment. And then we all got in the back of a Land Rover, trotted off to the hospital, unwelded the theatre. And then some of the nurses who knew that the one who was in trouble had come back because they fled to the bush. They all came back and welded the hospital. Un well, welded the theatre ward and did her cesarean section. Welded it shut again. And then it was another two weeks before it was it was open. Wow. So. That's incredible. I mean, it must have been very stressful for like me to have to like go through the, her baby entering the world in the middle of all of this. Well, 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 hugely. I mean, it's it's bad enough anyway, but to you know know that you know you couldn't deliver without a cesarean session. Anyway, that story has a lovely ending, although we're digressing a little, aren't we? But that has a lovely ending. About two years ago, I got an email from uh, the NHS Highland. Um, PR saying there was a Umar Karuma who knew me in Sarabu who wanted to be in touch and tried to track down me. Uh, fairly obvious name anyway, so I thought, well, I didn't recognize his name, but he'd said he was in Sarabu and I was in Sarabu, that was fine. So I emailed him and became Facebook friends. Anyway, this was the baby. Oh, wow. Who's now 26. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Track me down. <laughs> We're now Facebook friends. So that's brilliant. Oh, I love that. <laughs> that's so cute. I mean, I think that's a really nice part of travel is that you do get to like kind of touch people's lives. And obviously, as a doctor, you do so even more. But to then, um, with the internet now, maintain those connections even when you return home. Well, that's at the time, of course, when I was there, there was no internet, there was no mobile. So I had. I lost a lot of my connections that were there. Um, when I went back, as I said, I'd gone back, I managed to make connections again with the, the couple of people who'd been there. So um, so one of them was um, the matron of the hospital, a fantastic, fantastic woman, Mariama. And um, so I managed to make connection with her. And she'd got <laughs> to get, um, she got interviewed at a job at the London Tropical Medicine uh, Liverpool Tropical Medicine um, School um, to be the kind of uh, lead lead midwife for Africa, the kind of representative for midwives in Africa. And she would come across every two years to have a kind of upgrade, uh, you know, a teaching program that would be funded by them. And in the interview, they um, they found out she was a Mariam in my book, and the guy who was interviewing had read. <laughs> Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. <laughs> no, I got the job because of your book. Wow. I'm sure you didn't get the job because of my book. This was just a wonderful, wonderful woman. Anyway, so we'd, we're Brilliant. still in touch as well. So. And she um, came and visited about five years ago up, up, in, up in the Highlands. You know, so that was lovely too. <laughs> oh, that's so nice. Oh, I, I just I love when you get to like re-meet friends when you're traveling. I think that's this, so this was about 20, more than 20 years down the yeah. line. It was, it was just lovely. <laughs> Wow. I love that. I mean, my travel story is much less um, fraught, I think. Um, I was uh, it was actually in Africa as well, but it was up in Morocco. I mean, I was on a tour, so that obviously makes it a lot less. <laughs> um, but I was traveling through Morocco. I was waiting for my mom to come meet me, actually, because um, I'd been living in Europe for about half a year at that point. And we decided to meet up in one spot. We chose Morocco because I'd been pestering her to go to Africa with me for I don't know, the, my entire life, basically. Um, and she had gone to Africa on her own, actually, after I had moved out, and I was very annoyed. So I demanded that she go with me again. But um, our schedules didn't work very well, so I ended up there about a week ahead of her, and I wanted something to do. So I decided I'm going to ride a camel into the desert because that's something that like a lone white girl should do. So <laughs> um, I was convinced I could do it myself. My mom very rightly told me to go on a tour because I've never ridden a camel other than like, I don't know, on some weird touristy thing. I have never camped properly before, so I should not be in charge of myself in a desert. Um, so I found a company that worked with uh, the Berber people, which are the indigenous people in Morocco, to take you to like a kind of Berber encampment. And I was so excited. Uh, it was like a three-day journey up through the Atlas Mountains and then into the I'm not going to pronounce it, but the Marrakush Desert um, that is beautiful. But I had done no research before doing this. So I'm really glad I was on a tour because at least like they had us staying in really cute little riads and like a family owned kind of house, basically. Um, and then the Berber encampment wasn't real tense. They were um, kind of metal storage containers that were just like carpeted all on the inside and had a tent on the outside of it. <laughs> um, what I hadn't realized, though, is that in a desert, I grew up in Canada. So like in Canada, in the winter, it's cold. In the summer, it's hot. And hot and cold don't meet. In the desert at night, of course, it drops spectacularly. And mm. it is the coldest thing you've ever felt. And probably not the coldest, but it's awful, especially if you've been around in like a camisole and shorts all day. And suddenly, it's the middle of the night. And I fortunately, my the people at the Riyadh in, in Marrakesh had told me, bring your winter coat. And I thought they were ridiculous. I was like, oh, okay, to like, I don't know, for padding on the camel or something. Like, why would I need this? 
so <laughs> thank God for them or I would have absolutely frozen to death because um, I was I'm also allergic to wool so I can't use most of the blankets there so it was me wearing every layer of clothing I had brought for this three-day adventure every night with my winter coat fully done up to the top and then a thin sheet that way I could try and protect myself from the wool and then like blankets and carpets piled on top of me because I was <laughs> absolutely a popsicle <laughs> And I mean, it was a great trip in the end. I got to see more stars than I've ever seen in my life. I learned some Berber drumming. We got to meet some really lovely people. But, oh, it was, I wish I had actually read a single article before I had done it. Because <laughs> I was in the middle of the desert and I had no way of getting anything new, no way of like contacting my mom, no way of like doing anything really. I was stuck with what I had, taking freezing mm. cold showers and just going for it. <laughs> mm. Well, there's one thing about Sierra Leone, it was pretty constant. Yeah. Like 30 <laughs> degrees all the time, night and day. I mean, it may be varied by about a degree. Wow. Because um, uh, some of the volunteers, you get a month, you go for two years and you get a month in between, and a lot went to Mali and on to Timbuktu, so a similar sort of thing. And they, they struggled, of course, they'd been used to being 30 degrees humid all the time not this big swings of temperature that you get in yeah North of course in the, in, in the desert areas but, um, yeah, yeah I think it's much more dangerous North Africa than West Africa and Sierra Leone wasn't dangerous at all I mean yes it went a bit wobbly with the with the rebels but it was um I mean I felt very safe I felt yeah. very safe when I went back with the kids as well bizarrely I mean they'd had their awfulness and it was Kind of yeah. back to normal, except they've now had mobile phones. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do find a lot of people that have gone to Africa, though, say that, where there's this perception that it's going to be a lot more dangerous than it is, and that certain areas are super safe, but others aren't. And, I, and while that is true of certain places, overall, I found that people that I know that like did a bit of research and went to Africa had an amazing time. And my dad um, did a kind of charity thing. I don't, I don't fully understand what it was, to be honest. I was quite young, but it was something about like bringing bikes to the children or something um, with a friend who was a missionary. So they went together and he said like every little town they went through, everyone was so lovely. They always felt safe. I mean, other than the one time they camped in like the wilderness and there were like the glowing eyes watching them at night. But beyond that, um, <laughs> I mean, super, super safe beyond the animals. <laughs> I mean, I would never hitchhike in the UK. That's um, true. I don't ever, and, and I hitchhike quite happily in Sierra Leone. And if you got stuck somewhere, somebody would take you in. <laughs> I mean, they were, they had nothing, but they, you know, they, you know, they took you in, yeah. fed you their chop. Uh, I mean, you might get dysentery from, you know, Water not necessarily being boiled, but you know, other than that, um, I felt incredibly safe, really. Well, yeah. other than the, that's why I was so surprised by the river. It was the first <laughs> time I felt in any genuine danger, you know? Yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, it kind of feels like the like, land is turning on you at that point or something. <laughs> Where it's like, you've been doing so well. You finally started, like, your surgeries are going okay. And then the land is like, no, let's, let's exact some revenge for nothing. <laughs> So we've reached the point um, in the episode where we're going to share our listener mail, if you don't mind reading it to yes. us. So this is the, um, the smuggling scissors. I better put my glasses on. <laughs> so we 
We traveled a lot when our four kids were growing up and we used to fly all over. This time we were flying to Ottawa, our nation's capital, to skate the world's largest skating ring, the Rideau Canal. Gosh, I hope I said that right. Yes, you did. We had to bring a ton of stuff. Skates, helmets, and all the bits and bobs you need when traveling with kids. Well, I can uh, I can relate to that. Each child got one backpack for their toys that we let them pack themselves. We checked our larger luggage, and I breathed a sigh of relief. It would all be easy once we got through customs. We were nearly three of the lines that seemed to simultaneously energize and exhaust our kids. We had a routine for going through security. My husband would go first, then the kids in order of age, then me. One by one, the bags would go in the trays, and we begin to file through the metal detector. No one forgotten a belt or keys in their pockets. I was about to let out another sigh of relief when my youngest spat gets pulled off the conveyor belt. I sigh for a different reason. This isn't unusual. My seven-year-old was often getting pulled out for leaving something in a bag. I knew what it was before they even opened the bag. A pair of rubber-nosed scissors. I'd lost count of the number of scissors she'd had confiscated after packing her school pencil case for our trip. As the security agent starts pulling out various little bags and pencil cases, we all turn to look at her. She's done it again. When he finds the scissors, we know the drill. He'll take them and we'll be on our way. At least we won't have to deal this with again on the way home. After five days of skating and running around Ottawa, we're back at the airport. Our luggage is checked, we're in the security line. We start joking about them pulling her bag again. Maybe she's smuggling another pair of scissors somewhere in her book bag. None of us really believed it until they pulled her bag again. Somehow, there'd been another pair of safety scissors hiding <laughs> in the bag the whole time. Still don't know how she managed it, but we have a theory. The scissors must breed in that bag. <laughs> so that's from Emily. Thank you, Emily. Emily as well? Another <laughs> Emily. There we go. Emily is a breeding too. Yeah. <laughs> Two Emilys on the podcast today. Well, that's the trouble, isn't it? So it reminds me when we went through customs with our kids, we had seven bags when we went on one bag out of the seven entirely full of medical equipment. So it had drugs, needles, syringes, rubber gloves, everything in the thing. And uh, we were in Inverness Airport and they called to say that one bag had been pulled over for a random, a random check. <laughs> and of course, this was the bag with the drugs, needles, syringes <laughs> and everything. So I had a little bit of little bit of talking to get out of that one. Fortunately, I had no morphine in it. I had thought about taking some morphine, but um, I thought that might be problematic because when I was there before, they had no decent painkiller. Ah. So um, I thought, um, you know, I had somebody with five shattered ribs and we had to give him a couple of paracetamols. So I thought oh. I did... I did seriously think about taking some morphine, but I'm very glad I did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that poor customs agent that found all of that would have been like some sort of customs treasure trove for them. Well, they let me off, actually. I just smiled sweetly at them, but it was the fact that out of the seven bags, that was the one that they randomly selected. Yeah. And uh, out of all the people in Inverness Airport, which is hardly a hotbed of, you know, smuggling, really, Inverness, <laughs> um, that was the one they should choose. And I sailed through the rest of it, no trouble at all. Wow. So, um, had the sniffer dogs and everything at us in uh, Gatwick. But, uh, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. So I sympathize with Emily <laughs> and her double pair of scissors. <laughs> yeah, of course. I've definitely packed some weird things and always been worried that they're going to get taken away. When we first went to Sierra Leone, there was a group of nine of us, and uh, one of the guys in the group was a mechanic. 
So he'd smuggled in in his hand luggage. He had monkey wrenches, spanners, and goodness knows what. But he he just swanned in and out. They never stopped him. I don't know how. Because we had 25 kilograms each to take. And um, which is actually isn't that very much when you're going for two years. So he wanted to put, he must have had 25 kilograms in his hand luggage with all these monkey wrenches and things. But they didn't stop him at all. What they did stop was a girl called Alison who had. two years' worth of Tampax in her bag. <laughs> <laughs> and her biggest worry was it was going to be rainy season when we got there and actually what would happen if they all got they all got wet. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> Exploded out of the bags. So, um, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> I, love it. I mean, I've, I had to live abroad. Well, I didn't have to. I chose to live as a digital nomad for two years. And I can definitely sympathize with trying to fit your life into a suitcase and a little handbag to go with you. And packing, I mean, at least you guys went to one spot. I was packing for Europe across four different climates. Well, that's harder. At least in Sierra Leone, you didn't have to bother packing jerseys. So exactly, when you were in Morocco, obviously, you need cold and and warm gear. And that doubles up your requirements if you need cold gear. If you only need two T-shirts and a couple of pairs of knickers, then actually... uh, Although we did have four kilograms worth of (laughs) anti-malaria. Well, yeah, that would be... I think that's the thing is like what I had to put in for jumpers, you probably use that space for medical supplies and yeah. um, necessities that you wouldn't yeah. be able to get. Yeah. So one of the guys in our group had a wooden leg. So he got special dispensation to take his, his, his wooden leg. But uh, so he claimed that his wooden leg was, he needed another 25 kilograms for his wooden leg. But of course it was a high tech titanium or whatever version, which only actually measured like <laughs> two or three kilograms so he smuggled in down the middle of this wooden leg his wife is a nurse so he smuggled in all these extra rubber gloves and sweeties that's hilarious down the bottom of his wooden leg <laughs> see growing up my mom always had a saying well my my whole family did for my sister because she could eat she was the tiniest little thing but she could eat as though I don't know as if she had a bottomless leg so everyone said mm. they were like you must have a hollow leg it must be that like that's where it all goes <laughs> little did they know it's a possibility yeah, absolutely it's a reality <laughs> wow <laughs> I've loved ch- chatting with you about all this and I think these have been some great stories but I like to remind our listeners that travel is really fun too and even if there are some hiccups along the way um, we like to end on a travel triumph for that you've had in your life to kind of remind everyone that travel is worth doing and worth the hiccups. Coming back in one piece, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Getting the kids back in one piece. (laughs) I mean, hey, that counts. Like it does count. (laughs) It it, it, it does count. So um, my, my, so my daughter got malaria. uh, Well, I think she did. So we had to take her up to the hospital to get tested so she got taken up in the back of a motorbike and was tested and um I'm not sure why this is a travel triumph this is a travel triumph, sure a travel triumph. <laughs> I mean if it's not we can <laughs> try so I didn't really fancy having her in the hospital so um she had a drip in but my um my parents were going to come and visit me when I was out the original time but they never did because because there was rebels and it didn't seem like a good idea so they who were like in their 70s, this is just about travel triumphs for them. They suddenly decided, hey, they wanted to go traveling too. So they'd just been in 
think they'd been in Cambodia. So they came back from Cambodia and then had 10 days in Sierra Leone and joined us. Sorry. So they came over with the next doctor that was relieving me. So they arrived just in time so he could put drip up on my daughter. So I've got this picture of her in, the, in this barry outside having this drip being put up. But hey, what's my travel triumph? We all survived. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a great triumph. Like, <laughs> I think surviving is always the goal for anything that you do in life. <laughs> no, no, yeah. But yeah, I think that survival is kind of the big thing and kind of coming back with your whole self intact. Because I, I get sick every time I travel. I have the world's worst immune system. I get stress illnesses and everything stresses me out. So I'd say also having doctors available kind of most places you go and having kind of the ability to find those doctors. Like one of my first um, blog posts on my website was just about how to find a doctor when you travel. Because for me, it's so second nature. But for a lot of other people who've never gotten sick on a trip and God bless them. I don't know how they do it. I think like everyone gets sick at some point, but yeah, I think it's always an important thing to like have access to medical care. And well, it's much it's, different, isn't it? If you're right, yeah. because I had my you know, 25 kilogram suitcase that pulled over to Inverness airport with yeah. yeah. Actually, largely everyone said, Oh, that's lovely. You took it all for the hospital. But I largely took it all that we had enough for me and our kids. I left it all behind for the hospital, but I wanted to know, I wanted to know. I had it. I had a point to this, and I forgot what it was. But, uh, yeah. So, because well, yes, malaria, for instance. So I had malaria for about twenty-three seconds. So I was in Sierra Leone for thirty degrees all the time, and I'd been there for two years. And I thought I was a bit cold. I went to put a jersey on, and I thought I've never had to put a jersey on. And I put this jersey on. And I thought, oh. So I took my temperature, and it was forty-one degrees or something. Like, oh. So immediately felt much sicker. But because I was in the hospital, I had to wait an hour until the electricity came on. We only had a generator morning and evening, so I had to wait an hour. Went down, got my anti-malarials checked there and then, took the anti-malarials, and um, an hour later I was fine. But that's what you would call, that's better medical care than you would get here. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is, yeah. That, that's like having access to the storeroom medical care. Yeah, it is, it is. It's cheating. It's kind yeah. of cheating. I accept that. It is kind of cheating. But I think, I mean, obviously it's most important for the medical workers to be healthy and safe as we've learned during the virus and everything. It's important mm. that they, kind of frontline workers, get the treatment well, absolutely. First. And if yeah. you're not, if you're not fit, then um, if your family aren't fit, then you're not fit to be any use to anyone but um. exactly with everything that's happening with um frontline workers right now i mean it's kind of like bringing your experience in sierra leone to our world at the moment um and i know that you're still involved with the nhs so i wanted to also say thank you for your involvement and for helping to deal with the pandemic well that's very kind but when it ha in Sierra Leone after they survived this war, of course they had to deal with Ebola, which is yeah, of course, you know that's where you need PPE without a gap anywhere, and that's really scary stuff. Um, I did wonder about going, but I was going through menopause at the time, and thought of going through menopause and a Ebola suit didn't really. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's you got to take care of yourself first. <laughs> you got to take care of yourself, and I think that. Is actually crucial. You do have to take care of you know used to anyone if you if you can't take care of yourself first. And I think yeah. it's the same with traveling. You've got to be like 
a little bit sensible, not too sensible to take the fun out of it, but actually yeah. it's not much fun being stuck in hospital with cerebral malaria either. So, yeah. <laughs> yes, I think that's take very true. malarial. Sorry, I'm going to be naggy now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's an important kind of moral to end our podcast episode <laughs> on. Take your malaria pills before you go and have them with you just in case. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. <laughs> well, it's been lovely to have you on, Emily. It's been really great to chat and I've loved learning more about your life story. Well, thank you for having me. Tanky as it would be in Korea. <laughs> Attention passengers, we've now reached our destination. We hope you enjoyed the flight and have a nice day. I love that Emily was able to go back to Sierra Leone with her kids to show them that really significant part of her life and that she's able to keep in touch with people that really impacted her. Like they say, people make travel. I think it's the most important thing is to stay connected with everyone you meet. If Emily's stories of doctoring in Sierra Leone have piqued your interest, be sure to check out her book, Green Oranges on Lion Mountain. Dr. Emily Joy left her cozy life in York behind to work in a remote hospital in Sierra Leone for two years. There she finds the oranges are green, the bananas are black, and her patients are seriously ill. Without water, electricity, equipment, or real surgical experience, Emily must battle her own fears as much as the diseases around her. Just as Dr. Emily starts to feel like she can do this, the rebels invade. But Emily's problems are nothing compared to those of the people of Sierra Leone. And if they can remain optimistic despite it all, then surely so can she. Green Oranges has been described as Bridget Jones with a scalpel, and it really is. This is especially true when Emily is hiding in the loo eating Maltesers before she gets on her flight. Emily has been praised for her honesty and humor in sharing the trials and triumphs of her adventures. The book really makes you think about all the hardships doctors face when they do have access to the equipment. It's a great read for anyone who wants to know more about healthcare abroad or anyone considering an aid trip. Green Oranges on Lion Mountain is available as an ebook or audiobook. I've put the links in the description along with a link to Emily's website. Thank you for joining me for another great episode of Tripping Up. Be sure you don't miss out on a full season of incredible guests, so subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Do you have a funny travel story that you want to share? Send it to trippinguppod at gmail.com for a chance to have it read by one of our great guests. Cheers! Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.